Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for the warmth of your welcome, which is only exceeded by the difficulty of the topic that you have assigned me. The problem of evil and God is one of the hardest problems that anyone faces, no matter what their worldview. I do not think there are any simplistic answers. I would insult your intelligence by suggesting there were. So as I talk, I would be grateful if you would, if possible, write down any questions you have. And then at the end, what we do first is to listen to a range of questions to see what kind of a spectrum of ideas has been generated in the room. And then you will discover the depths of my ignorance as I try to answer them. Suffering and evil. And we're in a house that has known its suffering in recent days. The stabbing of the lovely Joe Cox last year. The terrorist attack just outside the door the 22nd of March. The London Bridge terrorist attack on June the 3rd. And then natural disasters like the Grenfell Tower fire on June the 14th. To say nothing of the endless litany of worldwide atrocities, as well as our individual personal suffering. And they leave many people asking, how can there possibly be a God when such things happen in our world? Now my aim is to address these questions from several different perspectives and to try to see what relevance Christianity has to offer, not in giving a solution, because there is no solution in that sense, but at least giving a way in so that we can process some of the immensely difficult questions that arise. It's a question particularly hard to face when minds and hearts are raw from atrocity and from extreme pain that often seems to go beyond the bounds of anything conceivable when we watch what's happening in Syria and elsewhere. These are hard things. And who am I anyway to talk to you about it? A man who can find the simplest dental operation rather challenging. <laughs> the issue is very deep. But perhaps it will help us just to have a frame of looking at it. If we think, first of all, there are two perspectives. Firstly, the point of view of the person who suffers. And then the people that observe the suffering but are not directly affected by it. Cancer looks very different to a young woman who's just been told she will die within three months. From how it looks to the oncologist who tells her. And so to this question there is an intellectual side. How do we come to terms with it intellectually? But there's a pastoral side. How do we accompany people in their deepest grief? Then there are two sources of pain and suffering. 
two logically distinct sources, although in practice they are sometimes intertwined. The first is moral evil, for which men and women are directly responsible, as in the terrorist attacks and the murder of Joe Cox. Such pain and evil comes from the breakdown in human nature. And of course we should not simply think of moral evil as being simply the activity of murderers, fraudsters, child abusers, or the physically violent. Because there are those verbal evils, hatred, jealousy, envy, and all the non-physical armory of verbal abuse of which humans are capable. Furthermore, pain can come from spiritual and theological evil. Misrepresentation of God can cause deep pain and hurt. And what, for instance, is the secular world to think of religious people who take to weapons of terror to realize their ambition? So that's one kind of source, moral evil and pain. And of course, the second is what we call natural evil disasters, diseases, for which humans are not in any obvious way responsible, like earthquakes and tsunamis and cancer. Such suffering and pain comes from a breakdown in physical nature. So we've got a breakdown in human nature and a breakdown in physical nature. And that's a huge problem. Our gratitude for Medicare does not remove the question as to why we need it in the first place. And even Medicare raises deep questions about the use of resources. Many years ago in Siberia, a Christian doctor told me that he had almost no medicines, no sterile needles. And he said to me these words that I've never forgotten. He said, I treat people with words, that's all I have. And on my next visit, I brought a suitcase full of medicines and sterile needles. And when I gave them to the doctors, they stood in a row and they just wept. The first medicines they had, and they told me they could get on with their calling to treat disease and pain. Now, of course, I'm aware that those two sources of evil and pain can intertwine. Human greed can lead to deforestation, which can lead to starvation. And so you have moral evil leading to natural disaster. And it's interesting that the longest conversation recorded in one of the most ancient, probably the most ancient books of literature we have, the book of Job in the Bible, is entirely devoted to this question. And what fascinates me is at the beginning of the book, Several incidents that happened to Job are described which illustrate the two sources of evil. Firstly, there are two raiding parties that come and decimate his flocks and kill his children and so on. That's moral evil. And then there is lightning and a hurricane. That is natural evil. Then finally, Job's wife added to his pain by her misrepresentation of God. And she said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? But we can understand that reaction, that visceral reaction to two kinds of catastrophe hitting the one family. And some look at this 
very understandably and reasonably, the only option is to believe that there isn't any God. Their belief system is atheism. Others believe in God in spite of the suffering. Their belief system is theism. And I met these when I arrived in Christchurch, New Zealand, about three days after the earthquake, and had to speak to people that had lost relatives just a few days before. It was raw. It was very raw. And yet I met Christians holding on and wanting to hold on, even though the mountains were shaking. I met others who told me that this kind of thing is the inevitable outworking of karma, that people had done something in a previous life that merits suffering now, and so therefore there's no point in alleviating it, because you're only condemning them to endless cycles of life before they get to something good. Now the important thing to see is that there are different reactions. That is sheer factual experience to suffering and pain. And they are very closely connected with people's world view. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his famous book, The Brothers Karamazov, tells a harrowing story of a Russian autocrat who sets his dogs on a child, and as a result, the child is torn to pieces. And on the basis of this story, Ifan says to Alyosha, tell me frankly, I appeal to you, answer me. Imagine that it is you yourself who are erecting the edifice of human destiny with the aim of making men happy in the end. But that to do that, it is absolutely necessary to torture to death only one tiny creature, the little girl who beat her breast with her little fist, and to found that edifice on her unavenged tears, would you consent to be the architect of those conditions? Tell me and do not lie. And in the end, Ivan maintains that he doesn't reject God, but in view of the hideous evil in the world, particularly cruelty to children, he cannot bring himself to believe in the eventual universal harmony promised in the Bible. And he doesn't wish either to have any part in that harmony on the terms and the conditions that he imagines incorrectly, as it turns out, the Bible lays down from it, for it. I don't want harmony, he says. From love for humanity, I don't want it. I'd rather be left with the unavenged suffering. I would rather remain with my unavenged suffering and unsatisfied indignation, even if I were wrong. Too high a price is asked for harmony. It's beyond our means to pay so much to enter on it and so I hasten to give back my entrance ticket. It's not God I don't accept, Alyosha. Only I must, I most respectfully return him the ticket. God, yes, in some sense, but not at the price of the suffering of even one innocent child. How we think about these things depends on our relationship to them. If you are a victim of moral evil. It may well be that you're still suffering physically or psychologically with the mental anguish of abuse, for example, or you may be smarting under a continuing sense of injustice. And you look for answers that will soothe anguish, satisfy your moral indignation, and above all, give you the hope, strength, and courage to be able to face the future. And if you don't get some hope, 
you may well, as many people do, have given up on God. Now, one way of focusing the problem is very ancient. As David Hume, the Enlightenment philosopher, pointed out, quotes, Epicurus' old questions are yet unanswered. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then is he impotent? Is he able but not willing? Then is he malevolent? Is he both able and willing? Whence then the evil? And some say, very understandably, that events like the floods of the Philippines, the earthquakes in New Zealand, the Holocaust, the murder of Joe Cox, and the terrorist attack just outside show us definitively that there is and can be no God. Now it's important here, as a Christian, I admit that religion can cause horrible suffering. Interestingly, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, claims that 9-11 radicalized him. This is religion. And therefore, he says, religion must be eliminated. And Stephen Weinberg, who's a very eminent Nobel Prize winner for physics, said the main thing we scientists ought to do and should do for this generation is to extinguish religion. Now, if we protest, as I have done, that this is extremist jihadi religion, and to put the jihadis of the Amish in the same boat is rather silly intellectually. They say, or they used to say, there has been a little wind of change, I'm thankful to report, that, look, where does extremist religion thrive? on the periphery of moderate religion. So everything has to go. And of course, because, as you have no doubt realized, I come from Northern Ireland, the question comes to me. And it's been coming to me for the best part of the last 50 years. It came to me the moment I arrived in Cambridge. How can you possibly maintain any Christian faith when you look at your own country. And if you look at your own family, and you look at a brother who was bombed, and you look at people you knew who were terrorized, how can you possibly still believe? Well, one of the things I find it very important to say is if we go back to the stance of Christ himself, we find something very different. Because he it was that told his followers that they were not to take weapons to defend him or his message. And so I read it simply that those who do so are not followers of Christ, they're disobeying him. And so they forfeited the right to be considered Christian, whatever they call themselves. But you see, the fact is, and it is true, that misunderstanding and direct disobedience of Christ has been a cause of some, certainly not all of the violence in Northern Ireland, because it's much more complex than that, as this house very well knows. It obscures something. And I notice that some of my atheist disputees love to quote John Lennon, 
the song Imagine, that is a very haunting tune. Do you all know the song Imagine? Imagine a world without religion and all of that. Well, I am not John Lennon, I'm John Lennox. <laughs> and I have written a song, ladies and gentlemen, and it's called Imagine. Imagine a world without Stalin. Imagine a world without Pol Pot. Imagine a world without Mao. What about that word? You don't hear a word about it from atheist sources. Blame it all on religion. There was a headline in Der Spiegel, a very famous German equivalent of Time magazine. Blazing over the front page of the photograph of the Twin Towers was a statement, Gott ist an Alam Schult. God's to blame for everything. Not a word about the fact of the hundreds of millions of lives that perished in the past century as a result of atheist ideologies. The three names I gave you are the heads of three atheistic states that were responsible for some of the worst mass crimes of the 20th century. Just imagine a world with no gulag, no cultural revolution, no killing fields, no removal of children from their parents because the parents were teaching them about their beliefs. No refusal of higher education to believers in God. No discrimination against believers in the workplace. No pillaging, destruction, and burning of places of worship. That is a world also worth imagining. Now what's the point I'm making? I will admit that religion, particularly pseudo-religion, can cause a lot of damage. But other religions must at this point speak for themselves. That's only fair. They've every right to do so. But on the Christian side, Christ himself said, you must not do it. And so anybody that does do it is not following him. And you know, it's very easy to see why he said that. Because when he was put on trial for being a political revolutionary, we forget that I said to Christopher Hitchens once, I said, Christopher, you puzzled me. You are so antagonistic to Christianity but you ought to be fighting for Christianity. So why? Well, I said, all the criticisms you make of Christianity are actually the same criticisms that Christ himself made of pseudo and hypocritical religion. And secondly, he was put on trial for what? For being a terrorist, to put it in modern language. And what did Rome do? The political authorities acquitted him of it. Now, why did they do that? Because when Pilate faced him with the question of what kind of a king he was, are you against me politically? He said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. And I'll explain it to you, Pilate, because otherwise my servants would have been fighting. It's not that kind of kingdom. To this end, I, I was born, and to this end, I came into the world. He said that I might bear witness to the truth. Now, Pilate was a clever man, a powerful military leader, and I'm not sure he was cynical when he turned around and said, and what is truth? Certainly he could see that a king who said he was king of the truth, a non-violent, a non-political, was no threat to him at all. So he marched out and told everybody that Jesus was innocent. And I would add a little bit more. You see, ladies and gentlemen, one thing history ought to have told us is you cannot impose truth by violence. Especially if it's truth about forgiveness, the love of God, having peace with God, and the central message of Christianity. So on the one hand, the point I'm making, 
There is moral evil that's come from religion. As far as Christianity is concerned, true Christianity repudiates it. Secondly, that obscures the fact that there's even more that has come from atheistic ideologies, the suffering and pain of the 20th century. Now, I've spent a lot of time in among those people, particularly in Russia. And I've often stood with a member of the Academy of Sciences right at the top of the tree. And I remember one in particular who said, John, you know, as I look at the past, we made a fatal mistake. I said, what was it? We thought we could get rid of God and keep a value for human beings. And we discovered far too late we could not do it. That's what Solzhenitsyn said. And so this huge question and I'm making it in a way more difficult because I'm putting all kinds of other things into it. This huge question has also to do with our basic evaluation of a human being. Why was Joe Cox murdered? Because she wasn't valued. Some perverted ideology said she's got to be extinguished. Why did the terrorists try to ram a car through the gates out there? For exactly the same reason. The value of human life at zero in the nature of an ideology. And I was taught as a teenager, every new ideology you meet, ask it, what is its evaluation of a human being? And that has been a very good guide to many things. So back to the problem. You see, I have a lot of sympathy. And I've sat with many people who tell me very rapidly in the conversation of, look, I have rejected God long ago. Many friends lost all their relatives in the Holocaust. And I remember two saying to me, look, we've got to tell you that we just don't believe in God. I said, why not? Well, he said, we read literature and we're reading a book by the Israeli... Nobel Prize winner for literature, Bashevitz Singer, a book called The Slave. And in it, he describes an incident where Jewish women and children were buried alive. And the husband and wife who read out loud to each other in the evenings just looked at each other. And he turned to me and he said, look, John, I can forgive God anything but that. that. So the light has gone out. We don't believe in God anymore. Now, how many people there are like that? Now, I respond to that in two ways. One is with extreme sympathy for these people. I suspect many of you have visited Auschwitz. I've visited Auschwitz many times, and I've wept every time. And similar things around the world. And when I hear of these things, I've got this visceral gut reaction that I don't really know what to say because I've no parallel experience to put beside it and anything I would have to say would be insulting anyway because I haven't a clue what it's like to go through that kind of thing. But then my mind begins to work because our minds want some kind of way into this. And the first question I ask myself is, is the atheistic belief system the only possible reasonable reaction to evil and suffering? Because you see, there is a question that arises. If there is no God, where do the concepts of good and evil that we all possess come in the first place? 
Dostoevsky, whom I just quoted in that same book, says, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Now, he did not mean atheists cannot be moral people. That's nonsense, of course, and is a serious slander. Indeed, let me put it this way. My atheist friends could put me to shame morally. Why is that? Because from where I sit as a Christian, every man and woman is a moral being of infinite value created in the image of God. And that's why, even on the pages of the Bible, you read about pagans who put the great, quotes men of God to shame. Like Abram being utterly ashamed when he was rebuked by Pharaoh for pretending that his wife was his sister. So let's not think that Dostoevsky was saying that atheists can behave. The question is much deeper. Where does the rationality for behavior come? If there is no transcendent God, to guarantee it. Now I'll explain a little bit what I mean by that. You see, let's take the atheist view to its extreme. Dawkins puts it beautifully but tragically. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe as precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. But of course, if that is true, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't take you to be very bright to see that's the end of all morality. There is no good, there is no evil, there is no justice. Well, what are we all fighting for? If that is the case, he is taking this, and he's never retracted this statement. So, the man who murdered Joe Cox was dancing to the music of his DNA, was he? Or the driver of the car? Well, if he been guilty of the shootings of children in the USA not so long ago, that exonerates them from all blame. It leaves us in a universe without any good or evil. But then, here's the irony. If there's no good and no evil, why does Richard Dawkins say that 9-11 has radicalized him? Why the fuss? Why does he call it evil when there's no good and no evil? It's because he's a human being made in the image of God, and because of that, he's completely inconsistent. You see, outrage against moral evil presupposes a standard of good that's objectively real. We expect in this room people to agree with us that the murder of Joe Cox was wrong. Do we not? We regard it as objectively wrong. Not that it's just true for us. But there is something outside of every one of us that points in exactly the same direction. Direction. If there is no transcendence then, no God, then how could there be such an objective standard of good? And if there's no moral evil or good in any case, the concept of morality disappears and moral outrage is absurd. And so that's one way of solving the problem of evil. Evil does not exist. And Charles Taylor in his fascinating book, The Secular Age, agrees. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong 
not noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the conditions of meaningfulness for moral right and wrong as well. And the very irony of this is the morality that Richard Dawkins and the rest of us rightly used to condemn acts of violence is in the Bible itself. And Thomas Jefferson, who was no strong theist, said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God? Now this can be analyzed because Friedrich Nietzsche perhaps was the man who saw more clearly than anyone the consequences of abandoning the biblical teaching that lies at the very core of the vast majority of our European institutions of law, universities and so on. He predicted that the death of God would lead to a Darwinian imperative of expressing the will to power. The strong must eliminate the weak. And he despised Christian morality as that of slaves. But he said something very perceptive. When one gives up Christian belief, one therefore deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality. Christian morality is a command. Its origin is transcendental. It possesses truth only if God is truth. It stands or falls with the belief in God. So as we try to assess this problem, here's the interesting thing. If we abandon God because of the existence of evil and suffering, we're at the same time removing the morality with which we judge it as evil. So we've got a real problem. So we go back again now to the question, could God not have created us without this capacity for moral evil? Could he not have foreseen it or go wrong and avoid it? The answer to that is yes. He could have made us like robots, programmed as by computers to do what he wanted. But that is perfectly possible, of course, that we can do that kind of thing. We can create robotic worlds in virtual reality. It's not difficult to do these days. But they're worlds empty of humanity and love. I would not be keen on having a robotic wife. <laughs> and then I would go back to the same thing and I'd come into the room and she'd have a kind of iPad thing here with various instructions and there was one marked K for kiss so we go and I'd get a robotic kiss. It wouldn't do anything to me. Now I'm glad we laugh because there's a deep human intuition that robots are not human no matter how sophisticated. That's a huge intellectual question. I, I'm very well aware of that. And we can't go into it tonight. But the crucial thing is this. Robots aren't free to love or not to love. They can only do what they're programmed. And Jean-Paul Sartre captured this long ago in a book called Being and Nothingness. He says the man who wants to be loved does not want to possess an automaton. And if we want to humiliate him, we need only try to persuade him that the beloved's passion is the result of a psychological determinism. And you see, one of the most precious things, perhaps the most precious things about you, is that you have a capacity to say yes and a capacity to say no, which makes you capable 
of love. And if God had made us incapable of those things, sure there'd be a world without evil, but there'd be a world without good. It would be a non-moral world. There would be no love. So wishing for God to have made a world in which sin and evil was impossible is actually, ladies and gentlemen, wishing ourselves out of existence. So we need to come back to it again and think a little bit harder. The next thing is this. Justice. The problem of justice. One of the horrific things about what has been happening recently and all through history in our world is people seem to get away with it. They get away with it. They never face any real moral assessment. You see, if you now take the atheist view, the vast multi-millions of people who have ever lived will never see justice. Ever. Because they're not going to see it in this life. And there is no other life, by definition of atheism, there's no other life in which they could receive it. All atheism can say is bad luck. You never did have any realistic hope of justice, and now you won't get any. And of course, the Hitlers of this world get away with it. So when they lose their power, they put a gun to their brains, and that's it. Is that really the way the world is? Because it's an affront to my moral sense, at least. Now, the Bible says the opposite to this. And indeed, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity say the opposite to it. That God is the authority behind the moral law. And he will be its vindicator. One of the marvelous messages of the Old Testament is there will be a final judgment. Now, when I mention final judgment, people don't like it. But on the other hand, if there is no ultimate judgment, there will be no ultimate justice, which is why the expectation of a coming judgment was described often in the Old Testament in terms of poetry. Let the trees clap their hands. Let the mountains rejoice because God's coming to do what? To judge. Because they felt at long last there is hope of getting justice. They saw it as an extremely positive thing. And it is true. I meet many friends and they have in their business maybe they have to put a lawsuit to trial and they're jolly glad there's a good judge that's going to give them justice. <laughs> It's interesting. We want justice here, provided ah, that it doesn't raise too many deeper questions. You see, to reject the notion of judgment, I don't like a God like that. And then at the same time to protest of moral evil, and please would God intervene and put a stop to it, is very odd. And sometimes when people say that to me, I say, what would happen to you if God applied the standard you applied to other people to you? And he started to judge. And that's a pretty touchy question to ask, isn't it? Because, you see, we cannot look at the problem of evil and pain as spectators. G.K. Chesterton once wrote to the Times in reply to the question, 
what is wrong with the world and his answer is famous as it's brilliant. Dear sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> We're part of the problem. And John Gray, who's an atheist, says the cardinal need is to change the prevailing view of human beings, which sees them as inherently good creatures, unaccountably burdened with the history of violence and oppression. He said, nearly all pre-modern thinkers took it as a given that human nature is fixed and flawed, and in this, as in some other ways, they were close to the truth of the matter. No theory of politics can be credible that assumes that human impulses are naturally benign, peaceable, or reasonable. And of course, that gives us a much more reasonable possibility. And I have to admit, I think and do evil. If then there is a God, why does he tolerate? me. Now, we haven't got a lot of time to deal with natural disasters. This is a hugely complex thing. For example, Christchurch, a natural disaster, earthquakes. Why do earthquakes occur? They occur because tectonic plates move. Are tectonic plates important? They're vastly important. None of us would be alive if the earth didn't have tectonic plates because we wouldn't have the oxygen and the various mix. So here we have something that is necessary for life as we know it, and yet, if you build houses above it, when this tectonic plates move, you're apt to get disaster. So it raises a question, couldn't God have built a universe in which there were no tectonic plates? Couldn't he have built fire that warmed you but never burnt you? This is a dangerous universe, as we have discovered. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a student, I debated those things forever. Couldn't God, shouldn't God, wouldn't God have done this? Do you remember those kinds of discussions? Did you ever get a satisfactory answer? Ever? That you were totally happy with? I certainly didn't. And you know, when I don't get satisfactory answers, I change the question. It helps a great deal to get through the long jam. <laughs> You see, there is another question that we can ask. Because the fact is that we are in a universe that presents us with a mixed picture. I call it beauty and barbed wire. And I think you get my meaning immediately. Beauty and barbed wire. You step out of this place, see the sky, see the Thames and so on. Beauty and barbed wire the terrorists and the murderers. This is a fact. So any sensible analysis of this question must admit this fact. So now comes my question. Granted that this is a fact, is there any evidence that there is a God that we can trust with? Now, my, is that a hard question. Let me repeat it. Granted, it is a fact. Is there any evidence that there is a God that we can trust with those ragged edges arising out of the twin problems? And I often say to people, at least listen to what the Christian response to that is. Don't judge it until you've heard it. Because... To my mind, and it's one of the main reasons I am a Christian, is that this message says 
that God is not only the judge, he's become the saviour who has himself suffered and risen again. And the heart of the story of Christianity, which confirms our knowledge of ourselves that we are moral beings, it affirms our moral sense by telling us that death is not the end. It tells me a Christian is not a person who has solved the problem of suffering, but one who has faced the way the world is and come to love and trust a God who has suffered. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who repent of their own evil and contribution to human pain and suffering, those who trust him for forgiveness receive the promise of a world where there will be no more suffering. Now that's a huge thing to present into a secular world that denies the very existence of supernature. But C.S. Lewis, who had such an influence on me, once wrote a book on suffering which says nothing about heaven is leaving out almost the whole of one side of the account. Scripture and tradition habitually put the joys of heaven into the scale against the suffering of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We are afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky. But either there is pie in the sky or there isn't. And if there isn't, Christianity is false. For this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. If there is then, this truth like any other must be faced. And so must its implications. And the pioneer Christian apostle Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor height nor depth, nor anything else at all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And these aren't the words of an armchair philosopher. He was nearly beaten to death on several occasions and eventually beheaded. You know, if Christianity stopped at the crucifixion, I wouldn't stand here for a nanosecond. You see, if it is actually true, and I believe it with all my heart as a scientist, let me just point out, I've written about that, so I'm not going to give the evidence tonight. That changes everything. Because it tells me death is not the end. That's the first thing. There is to be a judgment. That is to say, the terrorists, ladies and gentlemen, are not going to get away with it, ultimately. There's going to be an utterly fair assessment. And we can judge that by the character of the judge. Because one of the most dramatic claims that Jesus Christ ever made was that he was going to be the last judge. I mean, this is staggering. Lewis was right to say it's either crazy or it's true. There's no middle path here. That he was going to be the judge. And the judge has gone through the suffering. And when we come to this topic, this hard topic, and I feel it every time I talk about it, and it's the number one topic I get asked to speak about, particularly by young people today in Sydney. When I talk about it, I say, what does the cross tell you about this problem? Well, it tells you something very obvious. That the God revealed in the Bible has not stayed distant from the problem of suffering, but has himself become part. 
Step one. Step two is he's risen from the dead. Now, if he is the moral judge and he's risen from the dead, he's going to judge absolutely fairly and that raises another problem in my little heart. How am I going to fare? But he's the genius of it. And this is why I'm a Christian because I don't see this anywhere else. Because what the Christian message tells me is I can face that judgment because God offers me a forgiveness in this life that I can know and be sure of. Why? Because it's not based on my merit. It's based on what Christ has done. That's not religion, ladies and gentlemen. Religion tells you, follow this way, follow that, and maybe God will be able to let you through. No, no, that's not religion. This is grace. And this is deep forgiveness. And how does it help with this problem as I now close? My question is, can I trust God with the right answers? Atheism, to my mind, does not work intellectually. And in any case, it gives you no hope whatsoever, by definition. And the wonderful thing that I've discovered in my life is that people who've gone through awful suffering way beyond mine again and again have seen in this message at least a doorway into hope because they know that God is not only a God of love. Now, I'm saying this very carefully. He's a God of compensation. And what does that mean? I believe, ladies and gentlemen, I can't prove it. But from all I understand of what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, I believe that if you could see what has happened after death to children who have innocently suffered and been abused, I suspect, I can't prove it to you. I suspect that question is That's huge stuff I have to face. But the question is, is it true? Does it give real hope? It won't necessarily take the hurt. No. But it gives a hope that transcends death and promises a world in which we will have undamaged bodies. What a message that is for some people. Risen from the dead to share eternity with Christ. It's a huge topic, and I'm only scratching a little bit. But you know, when I was in New Zealand, I spoke of this to one of the largest crowds that had been seen for years on the Sunday after the earthquake. And there was a lady there. I didn't know she was there. She lost her husband. And when I stopped, there was a note, a note passed up to me. She didn't stay. She said, I can't stay. I can't face anybody. But this is the first hope I've been given. So I trust, ladies and gentlemen, that at least we see that there's a, there's a big picture here. 
And we need to think lots more about it. There are millions of other questions that flood in. Ten years ago, I nearly died, if you don't mind me being personal. But it is quite a personal thing to nearly die. <laughs> and I said goodbye to my wife, and I thought that was it. My right coronary artery had occluded. They saved my life. The surgeon, when I woke up, said, Professor Lennox, you should be dead. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still alive. Yes, he said, you haven't even had a heart attack. I don't know what's happened to you, but go home. I put a stent to it. And people say to me, do you thank God for that? And I say, yes, in that very same year, the 22-year-old daughter of my sister had an earthquake in her brain, and she died. Can she thank God for that? It can be very superficial, our reaction to these things. We need to be so careful. Because there's a bigger picture than all of this into which it all fits. Thank you very much for being so attentive.